0: Hello my friends, I am back, and I appreciate those of you that are hanging on and listening to Bluebeard in perhaps the most sporadic possible way you could be listening to an audiobook, which is to say that you are listening to it on the whim of when I get around to putting another installment in. So I apologize, I would make promises about being more consistent, but I have not been great at keeping those promises. So all I'll say is I will do the best I can. And I, I I am determined to finish this book for you. One of my favorites, Bluebeard by Kurt Vonnegut. We're in the middle of chapter four. I left off on page 32 of my version in the middle of, uh, this is the Library of America. It's a collection of um, His novel's from 87 to 97. That's 1987 to 1997. All right, let's pick up. My potato barn and the six acres that came with it used to belong to Big John's father, who sold them to dear Edith and her first husband. Big John expressed curiosity about Mrs. Berman. I promised him that our relationship was platonic and that she had more or less invited herself and that I would be glad when she returned to Baltimore. She sounds like a bear, he said. If a bear gets in your house, you had better go to a motel until the bear is ready to leave again. There used to be lots of bears on Long Island, but there certainly aren't bears anymore. He said his knowledge of bears came from his father, who, at age 60, was treed by a grizzly in Yellowstone Park. After that, John's father read every book about bears he could get his hands on. I'll say this for that bear, said John. It got the old man reading books again. Mrs. Berman is so goddamn nosy. I mean, she comes in here and reads what is in my typewriter without feeling the need to ask permission first. How come you never use semicolons, she'll say, or how come you chop it up? How come you chop it all up into little sections instead of letting it flow and flow? That sort of thing. And when I listen to her moving about this house, I not only hear footsteps, I hear the opening and closing of drawers and cupboards, too. She has investigated every nook and cranny, including the basement. She came up from the basement one day and said, Do you know you've got 63 gallons of sateen Duralux down there? She counted them! It is against the law to dispose of sateen Duralux in an ordinary dump, because it has been found to degrade over time into a very deadly poison. To get rid of the stuff legally... I would have to ship it to a special disposal area near Pitchfork, Wyoming, and I have never got around to doing that. So there it sits, in the basement, after all these years. The one place on the property she hasn't explored is my studio, the Potato Barn. It is a very long and narrow structure without windows, with sliding doors and a pot stove at either end, built for the storage of potatoes and nothing else. The idea was this. A farmer might maintain an even temperature in there, no matter what the weather, with the stoves and the doors so that his potatoes would neither freeze nor sprout until he was ready to market them. It was structures with such unusual dimensions, in fact, along with what used to be very cheap property, which caused many painters to move out here when I was young, and especially painters who were working on exceptionally large canvases. I would never have been able to work on the eight panels comprising Windsor Blue Number 17 as a single piece, if I hadn't rented that potato barn. The nosy Widow Berman aka Polly Madison can't get into the studio or even take a peek inside because there's no windows and because two years ago right after my wife died I personally nailed the doors at one end shut from the inside with six inch spikes and immobilized the doors at the other end on the outside from top to bottom with six big padlocks and massive hasps. I myself haven't been in there since and yes there is something in there there is no shaggy dog story. After I die, this is no shaggy dog story. After I die, and am buried next to my darling Edith, and the executors of my estate open those doors at last, they will find more than just thin air in there, and it won't be some pathetic symbol such as a paintbrush broken in two, or my purple heart, or an otherwise vacant and clean-swept floor. And there is no lame joke in there, like a painting of potatoes as though I were returning the barn to potatoes, or a painting of the Virgin Mary wearing a derby and holding a watermelon or some such thing, and no self-portrait, and nothing with a religious message. Tantalizing? Here's a hint. It's bigger than a bread box and smaller than the planet Jupiter. Not even Paul Slaesinger has come close to guessing what is in there, and he has said more than once that he doesn't see how our friendship can continue if I feel my secret would not be safe with him. The barn has become quite famous in the art world. After I show visitors the collection in the house, most of them ask if they can see what is in the barn as well. I tell them that they can see the outside of the barn if they like, and that the outside is in fact significant landmark in art history. The first time Terry Kitchen used a paint spraying rig, his target was an old piece of beaver board he had leaned against the barn. And for what's inside the barn, I tell them, it's the worthless secret of a silly old man, as the world will discover when I have gone to the big art auction in the sky. All right, folks, that concludes chapter four. I'm going to keep it nice and short today and hopefully be back very soon with chapter five. Be well.